Welcome to Volume 2 of The Mating Season. Chapter 3 Though as a matter of fact, in its early stages, the morrow brought forth some pretty good stuff, as generally happens on these occasions when you're going to cop it in the quiet evenfall, the day started extremely well. Knowing that at 2.53 I was to shoot young Thomas off to his seaside borstal, I breakfasted with a song on my lips, and at lunch I recall I was in equally excellent fettle. I took Thomas to Victoria, bunched him into his train, slipped him a quid, and stood waving a cousinly hand till he was out of sight. Then, after looking in at Queen's Club for a game or two of rackets, I was back in the flat, still chirpy. Up till then, everything had been fine. As I put hat on hat peg and umbrella in umbrella stand, I was thinking that if God wasn't in his heaven and all right with the world, these conditions prevailed as near as made no matter. Not the suspicion of an inkling, if you see what I mean, that round the corner lurked the bitter awakening, stuffed eelskin in hand, waiting to set me to the occiput. The first thing to which my attention was drawn on crossing the threshold that there seemed to be a lot of more noise going on than was suitable in a gentleman's home. Through the closed door of the sitting room, the ear detected the sound of a female voice, raised in what appeared to be cries of encouragement, and mingled with this female voice, a loud barking, as of hounds on the trail. It was as though my boudoir had been selected by the management of the Quorn or the Pitchley as the site for their most recent meet. My first instinct, as that of any householder would have been, was to look into this. Nobody can call Bertram Worcester a fussy man, but there are moments when he feels he has to take a firm hand. I opened the door, accordingly, and was immediately knocked base over apex by some solid body with a tongue like an anteater's. This tongue proceeded to pass enthusiastically over my upper slopes, and the mists cleared away. I perceived that what I was tangled up with was a shaggy dog of mixed parentage, and standing beside us, looking down like a mother watching the gambols of her firstborn, was Capmeat's sister, Corky. Isn't he an absolute seraph? she said. I was not able wholly to subscribe to this view. The animal appeared to have an agreeable disposition, and to have taken an immediate fancy to me, but physically it was no beauty prize winner. It looked like Boris Karloff made up for something. Corky, on the other hand, as always, distinctly took the eye. Two years in Hollywood had left her even easier to look at than when last seen around these parts. This young prune is one of those lissome girls of medium height, constructed on the lines of Gertrude Lawrence, and her map had always been worth more than a passing glance. In repose it has a sort of meditative expression, as if she were a pure white soul thinking beautiful thoughts and when animated, so dash it animated it boosts the morale just to look at her. Her eyes are a kind of brownie hazel, and her hair rather along the same lines. The general effect is of an angel who eats a lot of yeast. In fine, if you were called upon to pick something to be cast on a desert island with, Hedy Lamar might be your first choice, but Corky Peerbright would inevitably come high up on the list of honourable mentions. His name's Sam Goldwyn. She proceeded, hauling the animal off the prostrate form. I bought him at the Battersea home. I rose and dried the face. Yes, so Catsmeat told me. Oh, you've seen Catsmeat. Good. 
At this point she seemed to become aware that we had skipped the customary pip-pippings, for she took time out to say how nice it was to see me again after all this time. I said how nice it was to see her again after all this time, and she asked how I was, and I said I was fine. I asked her how she was, and she said she was fine. She inquired if I was still as big a chump as ever, and I satisfied her curiosity on this point. I looked in yesterday, hoping to see you, she said. But you were out. Yes, Jeeves told me. A small boy with red hair entertained me. He said he was your cousin. My Aunt Agatha's son, and oddly enough, the apple of her eye. Why oddly enough? He's the king of the underworld. They call him the Shadow. I liked him. I gave him fifty of my autographs. He's going to sell them to the boys at his school and expects to get sixpence apiece. He has long admired me on the screen, and we hit it off together like a couple of yes-men. Catsmeat didn't seem to take to him so much. He once put a drawing pin on Catsmeat's chair. Ah, oh, that would account for the imperfect sympathy. Talking of Catsmeat, did he give you the patent Mike script? Yes, I've got it. I was studying in bed last night. Good. It was sporting of you to rally round. I didn't tell her that my rallying round had been primarily due to force majeure on the part of an aunt who brooks, if that's the word, no backchat. Instead, I asked who was to be my partner in the merry melange of fun and topicality, sustaining the minor but exacting role of Mike, and she said, an artiste by the name of Dobbs. Police Constable Dobbs, the local Raza, and in this connection, Bertie, there is one thing I want to impress upon you, with all the emphasis at my disposal. When socking Constable Dobbs with your umbrella at the points where the script calls for, don't pull your punches. Let the blighter have it with every ounce of wrist and muscle. I want to see him come off that stage a mass of contusions. Seems to me, for I'm pretty quick, that she had it in for this Dobbs. I said so, and she concurred, a quick frown gnawing the alabaster purity of her brow. I have. I'm devoted to my poor Uncle Sidney, and this uncouth blue bottle is a thorn in his flesh. He's the village atheist. Oh, really? An atheist, is he? I never went in for that sort of thing myself. In fact, in my private school I once won a prize for scripture knowledge. He annoys Uncle Sidney by popping out at him from side streets and making offensive cracks about Jonah and the whale. This crosstalk act has been sent from heaven. In ordinary life, I mean, you get so few opportunities of socking cops with umbrellas. And if ever a cop needed the treatment, it's Ernest Dobbs. When he isn't smirking Jonah and the whale with his low sneers, he's asking Uncle Sidney where Cain got his wife. You can't say that sort of thing is pleasant for a sensitive vicar. So hew to the line, my puppet, and let the chips fall where they may. She had stirred the Worcester blood and aroused the Worcester chivalry. I assured her that by the time they struck up God Save the King in the old village hall, Constable Dobbs would know he had been in a fight, and she thanked me prettily. I can see now you're going to be good, Bertie, and I don't mind telling you your public is expecting big things. For days the whole village has been talking of nothing else but the coming visit of Bertram Worcester, the great London comic. You will be the high spot of the program, and goodness knows it can do with a high spot or two. Who are the performers? Just the scourings in the neighborhood, and Esmond Haddock. He's singing a song. The way she spoke that name 
with a sort of frigid distaste as if it soiled the lips, told me the cat's meat had not erred in saying she was as sore as a gumboil about E. Haddock's in and out running. Remembering that he had warned me to approach the subject tactfully, I picked my words with care. Ah, yes, Esmond Haddock. Catsby was telling me about Esmond Haddock. What did he tell you? Oh, this and that. Featuring me? Yes, to a certain extent featuring you. What did he say, Bertie? Well, he seemed to hint, unless I misunderstood him, that the above Haddock hadn't, as it were, done right by our Nell. According to Catsmeat, you and this modern Casanova were at one time holding hands, but after flitting and sipping for a while, he cast you aside like a worn-out glove and attached himself to Gertrude Winkworth. Quite incorrect, probably. I expect he got the whole story muddled up, right? She came clean. I suppose a girl who has been going about for some weeks as sore as a gumboil and with the heart cracked in two places gets to feel that maidenly pride is all very well, but that what eases the soul is confession. And of course making me her confidant was not like spilling the inside stuff to a stranger. No doubt the thought crossed her mind that we had attended the same dancing class. And it may be that a vision of the child Worcester in little Lord Fauntleroy's suit and pimples rose before her eyes. No, he didn't get the story muddled up. We were holding hands, but Esmond didn't cast me aside like a worn-out glove. I cast him aside like a worn-out glove. I told him I wouldn't have any more to do with him unless he asserted himself and stopped crawling to those ants of his. He crawls to his ants, does he? Yes, worm. I could not pass this. Better men than Esmond Haddock have crawled to their ants, and I said so. But she didn't seem to be listening. Girls seldom seem to listen to me. I've noticed this. Her face was drawn and her eyes had a misty look. The lips I observed were a quiver. I often call him a worm. It's not his fault, really. They brought him up from the time he was six, oppressing him daily. And it's difficult for him to cast off the shackles, I suppose. I'm very sorry for him, but there's a limit. When it came to being scared to tell him that we were engaged, I put my foot down. I said, he's got to tell them. And he turned green and said, oh, he couldn't. And I said, all right then, let's call the whole thing off. And I haven't spoken to him since, except to ask him to sing this song at the concert. And the unfortunate part of all of this, Bertie, is that I'm crazier about him than ever. Just to think of him makes me want to howl and chew the carpet. At this point she buried her face in Sam Goldwyn's coat, ostensibly by way of showing a proprietress's affection, but really I could see being shrewd in order to dry the starting tears. Personally, for the animal nift to heaven, I would have preferred to use my cambric handkerchief, but girls will be girls. Oh well, she said, coming to the surface again. It was a bit difficult to know how to carry on. A there, there, little woman, might have gone well, or it might not have. After thinking it over for a moment, I'd too batted. Oh, it's all right, she said, stiffening the upper lip. Just one of those things. When do you go down to Deverell? This evening. How do you feel about it? Not too good. A certain coolness in the feet. I'm never at my best in the society of ants, and according to Jeeves, they assemble it in gangs at Deverell Hall. There are five of them, he says. That's right. That's a lot. Five too many. 
I don't think you'll like them, Bertie. One's deaf, one's dotty, and they're all bitches. You use strong words, child. Only because I can't think of anyone stronger. They're awful. They've lived all their lives at that mouldering old hall, and they're like something out of a three-volume novel. They judge everybody by the county standard. If you aren't county, you don't exist. I believe they swooned for weeks when their sister married Esmond's father. Yes, Jeeves rather suggested that in their opinion he soiled the escutcheon. Nothing to the way I would have soiled it. Being in picks, I'm the Scarlet Woman. I've often wondered about that Scarlet Woman. Was she scarlet all over, or was it just her face that was red? However, that's not germane to the issue. So that's how it is, is it? Yes, that's how it is. I was rather glad that at this juncture the Hound Sam Goldwyn made another of his sudden dives in my abdomen, with the slogan back to Bertram on his lips, for it enabled me to bridge over an emotional moment. I was considerably concerned. What was to be done about it, I didn't know. But there was no gainsaying that when it came to making matrimonial plans, the Peerbrights were not a lucky family. Corky seemed to be feeling this way too. It would happen, wouldn't it? She said, that the only one of the millions of men I've ever met that I've ever wanted to marry can't marry me because his aunts won't let him. That's tough on you, I agreed. And just as tough on poor old Catsmeat. You wouldn't think just seeing him around that Catsmeat was the sort of man to break his heart over a girl, but he is. He's full of hidden depths, if you really know him. Gertrude means simply everything to him, and I doubt she will be able to hold out against a combination of Esmond and her mother and the ants. Yes, he told me pressure was being applied. How do you think he seemed? Low-spirited. Yes, he's taking it hard, said Corky. Her face clouded. Cat's meat has always been her ewe lamb, if you understand what I mean by ewe lamb. It was plain that she mourned for him in spirit, and no doubt at this point we should have settled down to a long talk about his spot of bother, examining it from every angle, and trying to decide what was to be done for the best. Had thought the door opened, and he blew it in person. Hello, Cat's meat, I said. Hello, Cat's meat, darling said Corky. Hello, said Catmeat. I looked at Corky. She looked at me. I rather think we pursed our lips, and speaking for myself, I know I raised my eyebrows. For the demeanour of this Peerbright was that of a man who has abandoned hope, and the voice in which he had said hello had been to all intents and purposes a voice from the tomb. The whole set-up, in short, such as to occasion pity and terror in the bosoms of those who wished him well. He sank into a chair and closed his eyes, and for some moments remained motionless. Then, as if a bomb had suddenly exploded inside his bean, he shot up with a stifled cry, clasping his temples, and I began to see daylight. His deportment, so plainly that of a man aware that only prompt action in the nick of time has prevented his head splitting in half, told me that we had been mistaken in supposing that this living corpse had got that way purely through disappointed love. I touched the bell and Jeeves appeared. One of your special morning afters, if you please, Jeeves. Very good, sir. He shimmered out and I subjected Catsmeat to a keen glance. I'm told by those who know that there are six varieties of hangover. The broken, the compass, the sewing machine, the comet, 
the Atomic, the Cement Mixer, and the Gremlin Boogie. And his manner suggested that he had got them all. So, you were lathered last night, I said. I was perhaps a mite polluted, he admitted. Jeeves has gone for one of his revivers. Thank you, Bertie. Thank you. Said Catsmeat in a low, soft voice, and closed his eyes again. His intention, obviously, was to restore his tissues with a short nap, and personally I would have left him alone and let him go at it. But Corky was of sterner stuff. She took his head in both hands and shook it, causing him to shoot ceilingward, this time with a cry so little stifled that it rang through the room like the death rattle of a hundred expiring hyenas. The natural consequence was that Sam Goldwyn began splitting the welkin, and with the view of taking him off the air, I steered him to the door and bunched him outside. I returned to find Corky ticking cat's meat off in no uncertain manner. You promised me faithfully you wouldn't get pie-eyed, you poor fish. She was saying resistedly vehemence. What price the word of the peerbrides? That's all right. What price the word of the peerbrides? Retorted cat's meat in the same spirit. When I gave the word of the Peerbrights that I wouldn't get pie-eyed, I didn't know I should be dining with Gussie Finknoddle. Bertie will bear me out that it is not humanly possible to get through an evening alone with Gussie without large quantities of stimulants. I nodded. He's quite right, I said. Even at the peak of his form, Gussie is everybody's dream comrade. And last night, I should imagine, he was rather low-spirited. Very low-spirited said Catsmeat. In my early touring days, I have sometimes arrived at Southport on a rainy Sunday morning. Gussie gave me that same sense of hopeless desolation. He sat there with his lower jaw drooping, goggling at me like a codfish. Gussie, I explained to Corky, has had a lover's tiff with his betrothed. Until after a bit, I saw that there was only one thing to be done. If I was to survive the ordeal, I'd tell the waiter to bring a magnum and leave it at my elbow. After that, things seemed to get better. Gussie, of course, drank orange juice. Throughout, said Catsmeat, with a slight shudder. I could see that even though he had made this manly, straightforward statement, Corky was still threatening to do the heavy sister and heap reproaches on a man who was in no condition to receive them. For even the best of women cannot refrain from saying their say the morning after. So I hastened to continue the conversation in a neutral note. Where did you dine? At the Dorchester. Go anywhere after dinner? Oh, yes. Where? Oh, hither and thither, East Dulwich, Ponder's End, Limehouse. Limehouse? Why Limehouse? Well, I've always wanted to see it and I may have had some idea of comparing its blues with mine. As to East Dulwich and Ponder's End, I'm not sure. Perhaps I heard someone recommend them, or possibly I just felt that the thing to do was to get about and see fresh faces. I had chartered a taxi for the evening, and we roamed around, taking in the sights. Eventually we fetched up in Trafalgar Square. What time was this? About five in the morning. Have you ever been in Trafalgar Square at five in the morning? Very picturesque. That fountain in the first early light of the dawn. It was as we stood on its brink, 
with the sun just beginning to gild the housetops, that I got an idea which I can now see, though it seemed a good one at the time, was a mistake. What was it? It struck me as a possibility that there might be newts in the fountain, and knowing how keen Gussie is on newts, I advised him to wade in and hunt around. With all his clothes on? Yes, he had his clothes on. I remember noticing. But you can't go wading in the Trafalgar Square fountain with your clothes on. Oh, yes you can. Gussie did. My recollection of the things is a trifle blurred, but I seem to recall that he took a bit of persuading. Yes, I've got it now. Said cats beat brightening? I told him to wade, and he wouldn't wade. I said if he didn't wade, I would bean him with my magnum. So he waited. You still have the magnum? This was another one, which we had picked up in Limehouse. And Gussie waited? Yes, Gussie waited. I wonder he wasn't pinched. Oh, he was. Said cat's meat. A cop came along and gaffed him, and this morning he was given fourteen days without the option at Barsha Street Police Court. The door opened. Sam Goldwyn came bounding in and flung himself on my chest, as if we had been a couple of lovers meeting at Journey's End. He was followed by Cheeves, bearing a salver with a glass on it containing one of his dynamite specials. Chapter 4 When I was a pie-faced lad of some twelve summers, doing my stretch at Malvern House, Bramley-on-the-Sea, the private school conducted by the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn, I remember hearing the Reverend Aubrey give the late Sir Philip Sidney a big build-up, because when wounded at the Battle of Somewhere, and offered a quick one by a companion in arms, he told the chap who was setting them up to leave him out of that round and slip his spot to a nearby stretcher case, whose need was greater than his. This spirit of selfless sacrifice, said Reverend Aubrey, was what he would like to see in you boys, particularly you, Worcester, and how many times have I told you not to gape at me in that half-witted way? Close your mouth, boy, and sit up. Well, if he had been one of our little circle, he would have seen it now. My primary impulse was to charge across and grab that glass from that salver and lower it in a gulp, for if ever I needed a bracer, it was then. But I stayed my hand. Even in that dreadful moment, I was able to tell myself that Cat's Meat's need was greater than mine. I stood back, shimming in every limb, and he got the juice and drained it, and after going through the motions of a man struck by lightning, always the immediate reaction to these pick-me-ups of Jeeves, said, Ha! and looked a lot better. I passed a fevered hand across the brow. Jeeves! Yes, sir. Do you know what? No, sir. Gussie Finknoddle is in the stir. Indeed, sir. I passed another hand across the brow, and the blood pressure rose several notches. I ought, I suppose, to have got it into my nut by this time that no news item, however front page, is going to make Jeeves roll his eyes and leap about. But that indeed, sir, stuff of his never fails to get the Worcester goat. Don't say indeed, sir. I repeat, waiting in the Trafalgar Square fountain at five, Ack Emma, this morning, Augustus Finknoddle was apprehended by the police and is in the coop for fourteen days, and he's due at Deverell Hall this evening. Catsmeat, who had closed his eyes, opened them for a moment. Shall I tell you something? He said. He won't be there. He reclosed his eyes, and I passed a third hand across the brow. 
You see the ghastly position, Jeeves? What is Miss Bassett going to say? What will her attitude be when she learns the facts? She opens tomorrow's paper. She sees her beloved's name in the headlines in the police court section. No, she doesn't. Said Catsmeat. Because Gussie, showing unexpected intelligence, gave his name as Alfred Duff Cooper. Well, what's going to happen when he doesn't turn up at the hall? Yes, there's that, said Catsmeat, and fell into a refreshing sleep. I'll tell you what Miss Bassett is going to say. She's going to say, Jeeves! Sir? You're letting your attention wander. I beg your pardon, sir. I was observing the dog. If you notice, sir, he has commenced to eat the sofa cushion. Never mind about the dog! I think it would be advisable to remove the little fellow to the kitchen, sir. He said with respectful firmness, Jesus is a great stickler for having things just right. I will return as soon as he is safely immured. He withdrew, complete with dog, and Corky caught the speaker's eye. For some moments, she had been hovering on the outskirts, with the air of one not completely abreast of the continuity. But Bertie, she said, Why all the excitement and agony? I could understand this Mr. Finknoddle being a little upset, but why are you skipping like the high hills? I was glad that Jeeves had temporarily absented himself from the conference table, as it would have been impossible for me to unbosom myself freely about Madeline Bassett in his presence. Naturally, he knows all the circumstances in regard to the Bassett, and I know he knows them, but we do not discuss her. To do so would be banding a woman's name. The Worcesters do not bandy a woman's name, nor for the matter of that do the Jeeveses. Hasn't Catsmeat told you about me and Madeline Bassett? Not a word. Well, I'll tell you why I'm skipping like the high hills, I said, and proceeded to do so. The Bassett, Worcester, and Broglio mix-up will, of course, be old stuff to those of my public who are hanging on my lips when I told them of it before. But there are always new members coming along, and for the benefit of these new members, I will give a brief, what's it called, of the facts. The thing started at Brinkley Court, my Aunt Dahlia's place in Worcestershire, when Gussie and I and this blighted Bassett were putting in a spell during the previous summer. It was one of those cases you so often read about where Bloke A loves a girl but fails to speak and a friend of his, Bloke B, out of the kindness of his heart, offers to pave the way for him with a few well-chosen words, completely overlooking poor fathead, the fact that by doing so he will be sticking his neck out and simply asking for it. What I'm driving at is that Gussie, though very much under the influence, could not bring himself to stop the necessary poor polaires. And like an ass, I told him to leave this to me. And so, steering the girl out into the twilight one evening, I pulled some most injudicious stuff about there being hearts at Brinkley Court that ached for love of her. And the first thing I knew, she was saying that of course she had guessed how I felt. For a girl always knows, doesn't she? But she was so, so sorry it could not be, for she was sold on Gussie. But she went on, and it was this that had made the peril lurk ever since. If there should come a time when she found that Gussie was not the rare stainless soul she thought him, she would hand him his hat and make me happy. And, as I have related elsewhere, there had been moments when it had been touch and go, 
notably on the occasion when Gussie got lit up like a cantalopera, and in that condition presented the prizes to the young scholars of Market Stodsbury Grammar School. She had scratched his nomination then, though subsequently relenting, and it could not but be that she would scratch it again should she discover that the man on whom she looked as a purer, loftier spirit than other men had received an exemplary sentence for wading in the Trafalgar Square fountain. Nothing puts an idealistic girl off a fellow more than the news that he is doing fourteen days in the jug. All this I explained to Corky, and she said yes, and saw what I meant. I should think you do see what I mean. I shan't have a hope. Let Madeline Bassett become hep to what has occurred, and there can be but one result. Gussie will get the bum's rush, and the bowed figure you will see shambling down the aisle at her side, while the customers reach for their hats and the organ plays, the voice that breathed over Eden will be that of Bertram Wilberforce Worcester. I didn't know your name was Wilberforce. I explained that, except in moments of great emotion, one hushed that up. But Bertie... I can't understand why you don't want to shamble down aisles at her side. I've seen a photograph of her at the hall. She's a pippin. This is a very common air into which people fall who have never actually met Madeline Bassett, but have only seen her in photographs. As far as the outer crust is concerned, there is little to fully realise to cavil at in this preeminent bit of bad news. The eyes are large and lustrous, the features delicately moulded, the hair, nose, teeth and ears well up to, if not above, the average. Judge her by the photograph alone and you have something that would be widely accepted as a pin-up girl. But there is a catch, and a very serious catch. You ask me why I do not wish to shamble down aisles at her side, I said. I'll tell you. It's because, though externally as you say a pippin, she is the sloppiest, mushiest, sentimentalist young God help us who ever thought the stars were God's daisy chain, and that every time a fairy hiccups, a wee baby is born. She is squashy and soupy. Her favourite reading is Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh. I can perhaps best sum it up by saying that she is the ideal mate for Gussie Finknottle. I've never met Mr. Finknottle. Well, ask the man who has. She stood pondering. It was plain she appreciated the gravity of the situation. Then you think that if she finds out, you will be in for it. Definitely and indubitably. I shall have no option but to take the rap. If a girl thinks you love her, and comes, and says she is returning her betrothed to store, and is now prepared to sign up with you, what can you do except marry her? One must be civil. Yes, I see. Difficult. But how are you going to keep her from finding out? When she hears that Mr. Finknoddle hasn't arrived at the hall... She's bound to make inquiries. And those inquiries, once made, must infallibly lead her to the awful truth. Exactly. But there is always Jeeves. You think he'll be able to fix things? He never fails. He wears a number 14 hat, eats tons of fish, and moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. See, here he comes, looking as intelligent as dammit. Well, Jeeves, have you speared a solution? Yes, sir, but... You see, I said to Corky, I paused, knitting the brow a bit. Did I hear the word but, Jeeves? Why but? It is merely that I entertained a certain misgiving 
as to whether the solution which I am about to put forward would meet with your approval, sir. If it's a solution, that's all I want. Well, sir, to obviate the inquiries which would inevitably be set on foot, should Mr. Fignottle not present himself at Deverell Hall this evening, it would appear to be essential that a substitute purporting to be Mr. Fignottle should take his place. I reeled! You aren't suggesting that I should check in at this leper colony as Gussie? Unless you can persuade one of your friends to do so, sir. I laughed. One of those hollow, mirthless ones? You can't go about London asking people to pretend to be Gussie Finknoddle Jeeves. At least you can, I suppose, but what a hell of a life. Besides, there isn't time to... I paused. Cat's meat, I cried. Cat's meat opened his eyes. Hello there. He said, seeming much refreshed. How's it coming? It's come. Jeeves has found the way. I should have thought he would. What does he suggest? He thinks... What was it, Jeeves? To obviate the inquiries which would inevitably be set on foot should Mr. Finknottle not present himself at Deverell Hall this evening. Follow this closely, Catsmeat. It would appear to be essential that a substitute purporting to be Mr. Finknottle should take his place. Catsmeat nodded and said he considered that very sound. You mean Bertie, of course. I massaged his coat sleeve tenderly. We thought of you, I said. Me? Yes. You want me to say I'm Gussie Finknoddle? That's right. No. A thousand times, no. What a revolting idea. The shuddering horror with which he spoke made me realize how deeply his experiences of the previous night must have affected him. And mind you, I could understand his attitude. Gussie is a fellow you can take or leave alone and anyone having him as a constant companion from eight at night till five on the following morning might well be allergic to him. I began to see that a good deal of silver-tongued eloquence would be needed in order to obtain service and cooperation from C.C. Pebright. It would enable you to be beneath the same roof as Gertrude Winkworth, I urged. Yes, said Corky. You would be at your Gertrude's side. Even to be at my Gertrude's side said Catsmeat firmly. I won't have people going about thinking I'm Gussie Finknoddle. Besides, I couldn't get away with it. I shouldn't be even adequate in the role. I'm much too obviously a man of intelligence and brains and gifts and all that sort of thing. And Gussie must have been widely publicized as the fat-headest ass in creation. After five minutes' conversation with me, the old folks would penetrate the deception like a dose of salts. No. What you want if you are putting on an understudy for Gussie Finknoddle is someone like Gussie Finknoddle. Said the eyes deceived. You get the part, Bertie. A cry escaped me. You don't think I'm like Gussie? You might be twins. I still think you're a chump, Catsmeat. Said Corky. If you were at Deverell Hall, you could protect Gertrude from Esmond Haddock's advances. Bertie's attending to that. I agree that I would much enjoy a brief visit to Deverell Hall, and if only there was some other way. But I won't say I'm Gussie Finknoddle. I bowed to the inevitable. Right ho, I said, with one of those sighs. In all human affairs there has got to be a goat or patsy doing the dirty work, 
and in the present crisis I see it has got to be me. It generally happens that way. Whenever there's a job to be taken on, of a kind calculated to make humanity shudder, the cry goes up, let Worcester do it. I'm not complaining, I'm just mentioning it. Very well, no need to argue, I'll be Gussie. Smiling, the boy fell dead. That's the way I like to hear you talk, said Cat's Meat. On the way down, be thinking out your business. What do you mean, my business? Well, for instance, would it or would it not be a good move to kiss Gussie's girl's godmother when you meet? Those are two little points you will have to give thought to. And now, Bertie, if you don't mind, I'll be pushing along to your bedroom and taking a short nap. There are too many interruptions in here, and sleep is what I must have if I am to face the world again. What was it I heard you call sleep the other day, Jeeves? Tired nature's sweet restorer, sir. That was it. And you said a mouthful. He crawled off, and Corky said she would have to be going too. A hundred things to attend to. Well, it looks pretty smooth now, thanks to your quick thinking, Jeeves. She said... The only nuisance is that there will be disappointment in the village when they hear they're going to get a road company number four Fink Noddle as Pat, and not the celebrated Bertram Worcester. I rather played you up, Bertie, in the advanced billing and publicity. Still, it can't be helped. Goodbye. We shall meet at Philippi. Goodbye, Jeeves. Goodbye, miss. Here, half a second, I said. You're forgetting your dog. She paused at the door. Oh. I'd been meaning to tell you about that, Bertie. I want you to take him to the hall with you for a day or two, so as to give me time to prepare Uncle Sidney's mind. He's not too keen on dogs, and Sam will have to be broken to him gently. I put it an instant nola prosequi. I'm not going to appear at the hall with a dog like that. It'll ruin my prestige. Mr. Thicknoddle's prestige you mean, Bertie, and I don't suppose he has any. As Casmeet said... They have been told all about him, and will probably be relieved that you aren't rolling in with a half-dozen bowls of newts. Well, goodbye again. Hey, I yipped. But she was gone. I turned to Jeeves. So, Jeeves. Yes, sir. What do you mean by yes, sir? I was endeavouring to convey my appreciation of the fact that your position is, in many respects, somewhat difficult, sir. But I wonder if I might call your attention to an observation of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. He said, Does aught befall you, it is good. It is part of the destiny of the universe ordained for you from the beginning. All that befalls you is part of the great web. I breathed a bit stentoriously. He said that, did he? Yes, sir. Well, you can tell him from me that he's an ass. Are my things packed? Yes, sir. The two-seater is at the door? Yes, sir. Then lead me to it, Jeeves. If I'm to get to this Lazar house before midnight, I'd better be starting. <laughs> <laughs>